like to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Now, we have read this passage for the last uh, two weeks, and we're really honing in on one particular part of it, as I said last week. We'll get to that in, in just a moment. You go to see the first showing of the Batman movie. You're expecting a a fun evening. It's a novelty. You're there with others of like mind. Things begin, and suddenly you see smoke. You smell tear gas, and a man appears and begins with a handgun and rifle and then shotgun shooting and shooting. And for the next 20 minutes, you and those around you are under fire. It is chaos. There's screaming. There is blood. And there's death. Eventually, it's, it's over, almost as suddenly as it started. And then the unraveling of just what took place here. People begin to file out. There's a hundred-plus policemen outside. There's EMTs, fire trucks, everything coming in to take care of the wounded and too many who are already gone. You're questioned. Seems to take forever. Debriefed. And eventually, someone picks you up because your car is stuck in that parking lot. And you're on your way back to your home. But you have witnessed pure evil. Was Satan in charge here tonight? Goes through your mind? Was that a satanic act? Where was God tonight? It goes ever so briefly through your mind because you don't even want to ask that question and yet it keeps coming back to your mind as you have seen something that you could not imagine witnessing firsthand. Where was God? Classical philosophy at this point would set up a dilemma. The dilemma often goes like this. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and bad things like that happen, then He's not good. Or, if He is good and bad things like that happen, then he's not omnipotent. 
And there's the dilemma. And the real dilemma comes then for those who believe what the Bible says about God because neither of those fits with what the Bible says about the nature of God, about His being omnipotent and being good. Today that's expressed from people as diverse from uh, a, a Rabbi Kushner type when bad things happen to good people to those who are not that far from our camp, some of them who are into what's called open theism. Kushner would say, well, you know, God's doing the best He can. And open theism basically says that, uh, yes, He's a powerful God, and yet He responds to that which takes place. And that's where you see His goodness because he's basically good and people like that are trying to defend God and and in essence to get him off the hook surely he would have stopped it if he could have now at first that makes some people feel better at first at first glance Because we want a God who is good. And when we speak of pure goodness and we see among us what we think of as pure evil, it doesn't seem to fit. And so how do we answer that dilemma? Well, I want to say right up front that getting God off the hook is not the key. Here's the problem. If you give up God's sovereignty, His being all-powerful, at the front end of disasters and bad things, you will not have an all-powerful God at the end of them when you go to plead with Him for help. And that view is foreign to the biblical teaching of God's power and His sovereignty and His goodness. Now today... I want to illustrate His sovereignty in the life of Jesus. You'll see why in a few moments. But it's going back to the passage that I said last week. I said we're going to camp on that a little bit next week. As you know, in Acts, we're trying to move on through, but there's sometimes you just have to stop. And that is in Acts chapter 4. We see this. And it's speaking of God being in control when Jesus walked the earth. It says this in verse uh, 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And here's here's the, the question, here's the statement to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now he mentions Herod and Pontius Pilate and some Gentiles and some people of Israel, but he doesn't say 
that what happened to Jesus, Jesus was just according to their will or their big plan or what they plotted, but it says, according to what you had, and there's that word, predestined to take place. Now earlier in Acts, Acts 2, verse 23, talks about Jesus being delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And there we see in one verse, we see the human responsibility. You crucified. You were lawless. Human responsibility and yet it was according to God's definite plan. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We may not always be able to tell exactly how they fit together, but they're both there. Both absolutely there. Now, Acts keeps emphasizing God's sovereignty, which means He's in control. They call Him Sovereign Lord. And sometimes people are okay with thinking that he's in control of the big things, you know, like keeping the universe running and, and that kind of a thing. But not quite as comfortable when we think about the details of our lives. But the folks in the early church took great comfort in, in the fact that he's sovereign. They wanted to call him that. You know why? Think about what was going on there. They're trying to share the gospel. They're filled with the Spirit. And opposition comes upon them. And it's scary. Two of their leaders are imprisoned. What next? Well, we know that it won't be long before one of them is martyred. Where was their comfort in all of that? Their comfort was... Whatever takes place, whatever happens to us, whatever doesn't happen, is all according to His plan. And that was their comfort. And I hope when you leave here today, that will be your comfort as well. We are going to quickly go through aspects of Jesus' ministry just to illustrate, uh, because that's what they were talking about, how God was in control during Jesus' ministry. Think particularly of the timing of events in His ministry. John 7, verse 30. And I'm going I'm to be reading verses quickly. They are in your uh, worship guide in the outline, but you probably won't have time to turn to them, but check me out later. I, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, pull anything over here, but we want to move through this quickly. John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20 These words he spoke in the, in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. Now I'm going to ask you some questions about why nobody could lay their hands on Jesus. And just for a moment, I'm going to be Mr. Obvious. Okay? In other words, you will know the answer when I ask you the question. Did they not lay hands on him because he was such a fast runner? Okay? You get the idea. That's what Mr. Obvious does. You know, he asks that, that question. Or because he was the master of disguise. Or because he looked like everybody else and he could just fit in with them. I've, I've literally heard that one, that that was why Jesus, they could never lay their hands on him. 
or because he knew all the hiding places. You get, you get the idea. It's none of those reasons. The reasons they couldn't put their hands on him was because God had his timing down and it was not yet time. There was other work to do. And that's why. It was the Father's power. It was the Son's will. And it wasn't yet time to set Passion Week into motion. The Father and the Son, the ones who are in control of every single molecule in this universe. And as R.C. Sproul says, if there's even one atom that is not under their control, then God's plan could be thwarted by that one atom. That's how essential this doctrine is. And then we see in John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is in his, his high priestly prayer, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now it was time. That was when the hour had come. For what? Well, we see his arrest. And by the way, this is why it's good for us to use Jesus' life as an illustration for this because think for a moment. I mean, we know the outcome of Jesus' life. We know that it led to our redemption. But if you were around Jesus, you would have seen this as an awful, evil thing taking place when he was arrested. You would have said, things are out of control. This is terrible. This is the worst thing that I can imagine. And that's why it's essential that we understand from this perspective. A large, think, think what was going on. There's a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. They came to arrest him. Uh, you know the scene. Jesus knew what was going on, uh, but said, Who is it you want? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he uses, uh, in answer to that, he uses the Old Testament name. Remember our series on the I Am his name, he, he basically says that, I am, and they all fall down backwards. They're scared because they recognize he's claiming he, he's, he's that God of the Old Testament. And then, and you've got to ask yourself, who's in charge here? The disciples take out their swords. Peter tries to kill the high priest's servant, cuts off his ear. You picture this scene is, is going wild and Peter and others, the servant screaming, he's in, in pain and so on. Jesus heals the ear and then he basically says this to Peter. Do you think I need your little sword? <laughs> that's not what he said. But that's basically it. Peter, you know, if I wanted... Just one word. Matthew 26, 53. I could appeal to the Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. More than 60,000 angels. You think I need your little weapon? Who's in control here? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in control. Go on. 
And I think, by the way, I think that's at least part of what Peter had in mind when in the book of Acts he's preaching and he talks about those things that were predestined beforehand. You know, surely he looked back at these circumstances in Jesus' life. And then we have his trial. Once again the scene. Jesus' life is on the line. He's not answering any of Pilate's questions. Pilate, okay, he's a little weasel. But legally, he had authority and he knew that. So, John 19, verse 10. Pilate says to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus to Pilate, Oh, you poor guy. I'm sure you really think that. Jesus answered, You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Do you remember what happened next? Pilate tries to release him. And he can't even do that. (laughs) Because that wasn't the plan. That wasn't God's plan. Pilate wasn't in control of anything, even though he thought he was. Who was in charge here? And then his suffering. We won't dwell on this, but very simply in John 19, uh, verse 28, it says, after Jesus is uh, on the cross, after this Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then it says in parentheses, to fulfill the Scriptures. And then he said, I thirst. That was to fulfill Psalm 69, 21. Who's in charge? On the cross. Jesus was. The Father was. The Spirit of Jesus. And then we see his death. John 10, 18, in Jesus' teaching, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. And then he proved it. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally, he dismissed his spirit. Now, when I was growing up, there was a a movie uh, called Little Big Man. Some of you might have seen that. That was kind of like almost this little guy in the Wild West. He was almost the Forrest Gump of his day. But one of the adventures he had He is dealing with an American Indian, a Native American, and he learns all he can from uh, this Native American, the the chief. He's very old and so on. And then the, the chief says, it is time for me to die. 
And then he goes through all the rituals and all the rites and, and, and chants and does various things that you, know, that you do right before you die, and then he lays down. It's, it's an amazing scene. And then a moment later, you see him open his eyes, and he says, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Well, to me, that's a great illustration. We can't. I mean, some of you might have had relatives where you said they chose when they were going to die. They really didn't. It might have been coincidental when God called them home. I know my 95-year-old mother, if you could choose your moment, she would be with the Lord right now. You can't just decide it's time. That's in the Lord's hands except for Jesus. When he was done, he gave up his spirit because he was in control. Now, what's it mean for us? All that's in the life of Jesus. Absolutely, God was in control, but what about us? Matthew 10, verse 29 says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. They're trying to think of the, the littlest, cheapest animal, least worthy in the minds of people of that day. But even in them, the, Jesus teaches the father cares when one falls to the ground. and It's not going to happen without him. And then he says, verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You think your life's out of control? What about in our world? The shooting last week in Aurora, Colorado. Sadly, the news media will always find religious experts who will try to get God off the hook. The editorial pages probably today will have statements from preachers that like to get God off the hook. I've said it in a lot of different ways. If we give up on God being sovereign before and during the bad thing, the storm, the disaster, then we won't have Him after that. If we strip God of His sovereignty and calamity, then we don't have a sovereign God to offer to others and ourselves after the calamity. So, you're leaving the theater and asking the question, where was God tonight? And ultimately, the, the only answer is he was in the same place he was before you walked in the theater and the same place he will be tomorrow and that is on his throne because the Lord God omnipotent reigns absolutely at all times. And that's our only hope that this world, this universe, and our lives are not out of control but under, under the sovereign and loving 
and merciful hand of our gracious God. If he's not on the throne, then we have no hope. Don't bother praying if he's not on the throne. There'd be no point in it. Why did it happen? Well, we can't always know. And when someone says they've figured out why, I'm always a skeptic. In God's mind, I expect there were millions of reasons, many of which we could not begin to comprehend. But I will tell you this. Some little punk who buys a gun will not thwart the will of God. It's not going to happen. And so we have to hang on to that which we do know. We know He's sovereign. We know He's good and loving. And He works all things for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. So in our life, I have said this many times before, you need to remember, control is an illusion. <laughs> if you think you're in control of your life, it's an illusion. Remember that the context of the prayer in Acts where God is addressed as sovereign was the trouble and trials and plea to God for help. The fact that they knew that God was in control of uh, what at that time were the worst circumstances they could have imagined gave them courage to continue on and to survive. If they had thought He was out of control, they would have been without any help for the future. And so what is it in my life, you need to ask, that is out of my control? And by the way, if you can't quickly name some things, then you may really have deluded yourself that you're in control. But there are things that are absolutely obvious and clear. I want to read you a, a quote that I, I actually read virtually every morning. I keep it in my one-year Bible, and I read it as a prayer to the Lord. I found this quote uh, not too long after I had my heart attack some seven years ago. This is uh, from the journal of Jim Elliott. He said this, I read Job 12.10 again. In his hand is the life of every living thing. That's a quote from Job 12. I, and then he's writing this. I recognize that all I am and have is the Almighty's. He could in one instant change the whole course of my life with accident, tragedy, or any event unforeseen. Job is a lesson in acceptance not a blind resignation, but of believing acceptance that what God does is well done. And so, Father, with happy committal, this is the part I read, 
I give you my life again this morning. Not for anything special. Simply to let you know that I regard it as yours. Do with it as it pleases you. Only give me great grace to do for the glory of Christ Jesus whatever comes to me in sickness and in health. That's been a great comfort for me. And and here's what it does. God's sovereignty and His goodness and His love. Here's what it does for me. Pressure's off. I don't have to control everything because the one who knows better than me is in control. So whatever you feel in your life is is out, out of control, take courage. By His power and His will, what is taking place is what the book of Acts says He decided beforehand should take place. He wasn't surprised. He's not overcome. He's not shocked. And He knows the outcome. And it depends completely on Him. Like the apostles, we can go on because we know He's in control. The pressure is off of us to control. Will you acknowledge that? That the Lord... God omnipotent reigns. Let's bow together. Lord, we would plead with You to give us a trust in You. And when we come to those dilemmas that we just can't figure out, help us to know You've got a greater purpose. And if You want us to know it, You will explain it to us, or You already have. And if it's not for us to know or we couldn't comprehend it, then it's better for you to keep it to yourself. And that's, Lord, where we need to come to you as a father and trust you. But it's awfully hard, Lord. It's hard for everyone in this room. So we need your grace to do that. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.